I have to tell the people about the Patreon. Yes, you do. Patreon.com slash SMDB. SMDB, like so many damn books. For just a dollar, you can join up and you get access to all the exclusive content that I record just for the Patreon. Also, you get to join the book club. The So Many Damn Books book club. It's been some of the best conversations I've had about books. It really always sounds like a blast. I usually like come home and just hear like giggles coming from the library. So it's a great time. You should join. And I would love to have more people join the fray. You may or may not know that Christopher runs this whole show himself on the hosting side, on the technical side, everything. This is a one-man show, truly. He does it all. Support your boy Christopher. Even at the dollar level really helps. So uh, join up patreon.com slash smdb i'd love to have you patreon.com slash smdb on with the show is it on are you are we okay or were you lying was i lying someone lied yeah i think it's good cool so many so many so many damn books so uh, welcome to this episode of uh, So Many Damn Books. I'm Christopher. I'm Drew. And we have Lev Grossman here in the damn library with us. Uh, Lev Grossman is the author of uh, Warp and Codex and the Magician's Trilogy. And he's also the technology writer and book critic for Time Magazine. Thank you so much for joining us, Lev. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, welcome. And uh, so we always start the show, or we always do. We've done this one week now, <laughs> and we're going to do it again it, with the... With what did you buy? What did you buy uh, this week, Drew? Um, I just bought The Familiar Volume 1, a rainy d- one, one Rainy Day in May, the new Mark Danieleski, uh first of 27 volume. Right. Uh, the, the master of ergodic fiction. Wow, what a weird word. Yeah, I know. That's uh, for those. I, I, I wrote a thing once about ergodic fiction, which is fiction that requires action from the reader. So if you need to like take the book and read it in a mirror or something, or that, like hi- reading hieroglyphs is also a really good ergodic fiction. Ergodic, like it's like erotic with a G. Yeah. <laughs> and a D instead of a T. Oh, right. Oh, sorry. Yeah, oh. Totally. yeah it's all off. Erotic uh, with a G. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not exciting. So many things are erotic with G. So. <laughs> um, yeah. And have you read any of it? Yeah. It. Um. I'm on board. Yeah. So far, you're like, going to read 27 volumes. Yeah. I. I. Uh, 13 and a half years from now, I look forward to <laughs> the conclusion, or something. <laughs> I read House of Leaves when it came out, um, and it's the last book I can remember reading where. I, when I went to bed, I couldn't turn the lights off. <laughs> I had to leave the lights on for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you buy anything this week, Lev, that j- of uh, note? Yeah, that's a good question. Whether I did buy a book, but whether it is of note um, or not is uh, is, um, uh, is sort of questionable. It wasn't, it wasn't a work of fiction, and it wasn't new. It was an encyclopedia of um, Arthuriana, King Ooh. Arthur-related information that's cool that's really cool yeah it's it is actually super cool uh king arthur is like a rabbit hole you start getting interested in him and like it goes all the way down yeah <laughs> it's king arthur all the way down <laughs> um yeah. even under the turtles there's just more king arthur yeah <laughs> uh, christopher uh i bought uh the ghost network by kate disabato 
Di Sabato. Um, and I also went to um, Knazgard at uh, Powerhouse Arena and bought uh, My Struggle Book Four and had it signed by him. He's a gigantic man. He's like 6'3 and has huge, huge hands. Mm. Is, uh, I believe that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's fact. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that's, I'm, I'm very looking forward to, I mean, we're both in multi-volume um, series now, I guess, is what's happening. Yeah. Is the, Daniel Esky, is that a fake out, though, or is he actually going to do more, like, actual multi-volumes? I thought it was maybe going to be a fake out, and then the second book is coming out in October, and again, it's like 800 pages. And in October? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, isn't so it doing three volumes a year or something? I, or think it's, I think they're looking at, like, two, maybe three. It's like Jeff Vanderveer just opened the floodgates, you know? And yeah. Suddenly, you can do multiple volumes of fiction in one year. Yeah. That's the new rule. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's people think, you know, it's the Netflix model of book releasing, yeah. which does that make sense? I don't know. There's also something cool about the, you can't like, you can catch up and binge it or it's like bringing back the Dickensian, like ah, I'm waiting so much for this next, but knowing that like, I only have to wait six months. Yeah. I don't have to wait mm -hmm. ho however many years it might be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, some things lead them so lend themselves to serialization though and some things don't so yeah. it can't work for everything that's true um actually i wanted to bring up uh the uh sort of the creation of i mean tim parks in this conversation with melville house um and, and tim Car parks is the critic for the new york book review right new york, uh, new york uh, review, review of books, books. Yeah. yeah and he was talking about um like the book world habit of creating this narrative of discovering a major talent like like a, your Ferrante or your Knazgard and then says he says um this is a quote everybody's different but it's quite clear that to become a sort of celebrity critic you have to be a critic who creates events and I was wondering if if you agree with that Lev uh, as a critic do you I mean do you have designs on being a celebrity critic and uh yeah I don't know if there aren't it's is there is celebrity critic a thing? <laughs> Are there celebrity critics? Uh, Are, I mean, Jane. I mean, James, James Wood. Wood. Is he? Is, is he? Is he a celebrity? If he, he, he might be the only candidate I can think of for a celebrity critic. I guess it, it's what you def like. For you, I look at you. I'm like, yeah, he's the he's the critic for time. Like, I know your name. I know right. like Machiko Kakatani, James Wood. Like, if you know somebody's name and you're like a reader, I feel like is that celebrity? Yeah, I think that. That might be the level of celebrity that Tim Parks is referring to. Right. Um, yeah, well, it's funny. I guess, you know, you, having demonstrated the power to make a writer is, is definitely, you know, that's, I guess that's one way you can make your bones as yeah. a critic. Um, I certainly remember when I was brought on at time, uh, it, was on a, it, was, it was on a probationary basis. And... Um, I mean, I'd been reviewing for a few years, but I, I didn't. In terms of being a staff critic, I didn't really know what I was doing, and I was sort of looking for things to do. And my mom had been teaching <laughs> writing at, at UC Irvine for a few years, and she said, "Well, listen, maybe you could just do me a favor. I've got a student who's got a book coming out. I mean, it's, you know, it's a small book, and it's been orphaned a couple of times because the editor in charge left. But you know, if you could just, I don't know, give it a little bit of a push." Uh, and the book was The Lovely Bones by Alice Siebold. Wow. And so I put it in time, and I interviewed her for for time, and suddenly it was like, hey, kid, you can pick them. <laughs> <laughs> the book blew up like crazy and became the biggest book of the year. Um, 
so that was how I sort of made my bones internally at time. Um, it says having just like, you know, the eye. Except it, I didn't really have the eye. I was just really lucky. My mom had the eye. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I've, I've read critiques of Harry Potter um, and their magical system, uh, just as far as talking about critics and critiques. Um, and I wondered, you know, your book, The Magicians, um, you've described it as in conversation with you know, uh, J.K. Rowling and, and C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. And I was curious if the magic in The Magicians is um, in conversation with that criticism or, or do you feel, do you feel, did you feel that while you were creating um, the magic system in the book? There's something of that. Um, there's something of that. Definitely. Um, uh, you know, I was, I was, I was conscious while I was writing it. I was, I was aware and I don't, I, I don't want to position myself in some sort of adversarial way to Rowling. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a J.K. Rowling super fan. Not just of the Harry Potter books, actually, but also Casual Vacancy, which I think is—I think it's an underrated book. I love that. I book. really do. Um, and uh, but I was conscious when I, I was—I was aware. I knew what A.S. Bryant meant when she wrote about Harry Potter, and that it was kind of the magic in it was sort of domesticated. It was not wild. Uh, it was domesticated. I—I I was conscious that magic had become somehow from this crazy thing that Gandalf can do in in in. In Middle Earth, I mean, and Gandalf's not even human. I mean, the Sil Silmarillion. Yeah. He's he's like a you know he's he's some sort of spirit spirit being um, to this thing that can be taught to school children. Um, and I thought, well, you know, maybe it has become too domesticated, and I wanted to introduce sort of more difficulty to it, um, more unpredictability to it, uh, more inexplicability to it. Can magic be truly magical anymore if 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 its behavior is so? completely reproducible um does it simply become uh, a slightly weird branch of science uh so i you know i was conscious of talking back to um to i was conscious of talking back to rolling i also wanted to get rid of the wands for some reason mm -hmm. the wands seemed like you know does a real wizard need a wand it almost seemed like a marital aid or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, it was too phallic, you know just like just put it down put down the wand i mean i know some people in harry potter can cast without wands and I always felt like everybody ought to be able to do it if they had to. Yeah, definitely. Um, and this is a good enough time to explain that for those who haven't read The Magicians, it's somewhat, I mean, the the pop description of it is Harry Potter for adults, but it's more than that. It's a it's well, the journey of Quentin. Yeah, and once upon a time, I heard you give a quote, something along the lines of it being just this side of, of copyright infringement of Narnia or something <laughs> like that. Uh, which, but like it's in the way of of being in conversation with all of these things, and I'm a little bit curious if your work as a reviewer, because you've you're very widely read, informed the work in your writing, just because you are like the characters are conscious of pop culture and they have the breadth of references that all of us have today. But you make that feel organic instead of it just being like, oh, he's he's taking aim at C.S. Lewis. <laughs> There's a sense of you being like, well, these kids read these books, so they would know what happens next. Well, it was important. It was important to me. I I feel like you know, uh, as much as I love Harry Potter, in some on some level, some of the characters, particularly Hermione, but also but also Harry, um, they don't quite feel like whole people. And the reason that they don't is because they don't read. I feel as though people that I understand uh, that I know, um, and I think people in general, if they don't read, they at least consume fictional stories mm -hmm. uh, on on a on a on a vast scale. 
we, we, we take them in every day. It's part of how, how we live our lives and how we figure out who we are. Um, and the fact that um, the characters in The Magicians, to some extent, constitute who they are uh, and understand the world around them through these fictional stories that they read, principally the Christopher Plover stories, but they sort of stand in for, for books in general, um, uh, that was important to me. And it, was, it, became, it, was, it, was, it started out as being a part of... It just seemed realistic. That's, I mean, that's what people do all the time. But I began to realize that there was something fundamental about reading itself... Um, it was so fundamental that if I was going to build characters inside a book, those characters themselves would have to read. When I'm reading The Magicians, that is the, that's the thing that I, I think that I connected to immediately was, was that they were readers. And I could, uh, for the first time, I could actually really see myself inside, alongside Quentin, you know, trying, uh, you know, even more than what house would you be in in Hogwarts, I definitely right. was thinking, you know, what, would I be a physical kid or would I, you know, and, and I think it's because I could really see myself actually being there while with Harry Potter, it's, there was a lot more of sort of, this is about something that I could never quite attain. Well, this was, was, that was a, it was partly a a reflection of of where I was sort of in my own life. Um, because I'm massively old. I was, was writing, I started writing the magicians when I was 35 and I was a Harry Potter fan at that point. I mean, Harry Potter was, this was like 2004. So I think we just had, Order of the Phoenix. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I, you know, I, I, I couldn't help but be increasingly conscious, um, uh, especially when I had a child, of how far away my life was from Harry's. Uh, I felt, so, it was a weird double vision. I felt so deeply identified with these characters and also so conscious of, of being just miles away from them. And not just them, but, but the Pevensies and Lyra and uh, his Dark Materials. Um, and I, you know, to, I, I tried, I, I wrote the magicians in part to sort of, I don't know, almost triangulate, just sort of get a sense of perspective and wait a minute, you know, my life is like, I, I think of my life as being like the lives of these characters, but actually it's not at all. Maybe we can find a, a point somewhere in the middle. Hmm. Um, so the, the fantasy fan base that you've found by writing the magicians trilogy do you worry that you, they might not follow you if you if for whatever your next project is if it's not a fantasy based or genre based thing? Um, I I you know I mean I I will worry about that. There will be a time. <laughs> there will be a time for for worrying about that. Um, uh, it's 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 not it's not a th- it's a kind of thing. I mean, I, I like all other writers everywhere. I'm not a saint, so I I, I, w- I always worry at some point about whether somebody will buy my books, whether people will like them, whether people will tweet about them and stuff like that. Um, but, but, you know, that, that, that sort of happens later. I'm, you know, I'm sort of fulminating a, a, a new project right now. Actually, I'm in a, at, a, at a great rate at this point. I'm in the sort of peak, peak sort of world building right now. And, 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 um, but I just, every time I start thinking about that, it, my, the world building stops. I can't think about the two of them at the same time. So, uh, I will worry about whether the, whether people will come with, um, but not yet. Mm. Uh, I actually think I think they will. I actually I started something that was miles away from the magicians, and it just ground to a halt. And this is something close enough, but not too close. You just wrote an essay for the Believer. Um, this is a little bit of a of a transition moment, but. You, you, this quote stuck out to me. It was an essay about uh, Leonard Wolf, mm. and you said modernism and fantasy are two very different responses to the same disaster. 
And I had never thought about fantasy in that context. You know, we think about modernism and the sort of the the breakdown of traditional structures of of novels. It's like, oh, right, they're responding to the breakdown of the world. Mm. But fantasy as a response to that, I'm incredibly curious, and I'm just wondering if you can say a little bit more about that dichotomy. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I ought to be able to, because I'm supposed to give a lecture about this in, in five days. <laughs> Every year at Oxford, they have this sort of the annual J.R. Tolkien lecture, which I was supposed to give this year, and um, I should be writing it right now. So maybe we can we can sort of workshop it a little bit. Um, but I do want to... I'm really interested in fantasy and modernism because it took me a long time to notice that all the books, the lo- books that I love most in the world, um, were written at not exactly the same time, but, uh, you know, within 10, 15 years of each other. And they were the modernists, the work of the modernists, especially Wolf, uh, but also Joyce and Hemingway and Fitzgerald um, and Kafka... Um, and then, uh, you know, the, the sort of pioneers of the modern fantasy novel, like Lewis and Tolkien and, and, and T.H. White, they were working at the same time. And I felt as though there must be a, a thread, a common thread among them because I loved them all and because they were working at, at approximately the same moment. Um, and then the more I thought about it, the more it became clear to me that, um, yeah, they, the, you know, this idea of, modern, of, 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 of the arrival of modernity as a kind of shattering um, of the world, um, uh, you know, including but not restricted to the arrival of mechanized warfare um, with World War One um, and chlorine gas and all that stuff. Uh, but also, you know, we sort of forget about it, but this is when cities were becoming electrified for the first time. This is when mm. we were, we, uh, horses were being replaced by cars. That happened. Um, <laughs> so, you know, these people lived in a world that resembled in no way the world that they grew up in. Uh, you know, this was the arrival of mass media. Uh, this was psychoanalysis became a thing. Um, you know, advertising. Uh, it, it, you know, the the world is being transformed in 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 not necessarily great ways. And uh, the idea that the modernists were responding to it and that the fantasists were responding to it is 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 um, incontrovertible. They were responding to the same thing. But yeah, I think in opposite ways. I think fantasies, the modernists were trying to think, what would it mean to depict a shattered world um, accurately? What would what would a shattered novel look like or a shattered poem? And and the fantasists were thinking, well, what would it be like to, to draw a picture of a whole world? Hmm. What would that look like? And it would look like Narnia or it would look like Middle Earth. Yeah, and I think it's somewhat too that that it's the first time with connection by telephones and, and distances just becoming smaller that that I feel like you could be depicting a whole world or just thinking about the earth as like a continuous thing rather than mm-hmm. it being shattered. It's a strange moment because it's, mom- it's a moment of global, of, on one level, global integration into a whole and on the other hand, um, a, a, a kind of breaking apart, a less literal breaking apart that's harder to describe but that they obviously felt very deeply. The, your comment about a shattered novel I can't think, I mean, the first modernist text that I think comes to anybody's mind is a book, that I think it's safe to say that all three of us like a whole lot, you like a lot, a lot, um, <laughs> is Mrs. Dalloway. So, so Mrs. Dalloway. Mrs. Dalloway, which... Written by Virginia Woolf. Lev, you have said is your favorite book. Yeah, everybody gets forced to answer that question <laughs> once in a while. And I used to sort of say, well, 
it's because, you know, there's just a galaxy of marvelous novels in my head all the time. And eventually I gave up and just started saying Mrs. Dalloway because it's un- unquestionably, you know, it's always in my rotating top five. It never rotates out. It was a book that I read, I think read it freshman, freshman year of college. And, um, you know, it, it was the book that took me from, um, wow, I really love novels. You know, maybe I should try to write, write one one day to... Um, I have to do this. I have to try this because this, this, this is a this, this, this is it's, it's incredibly important. And B, I feel like I understand something about them. Like I, I look at this book and think, yeah, I can see how the, the different parts work. Um, it was a really and it was a really transformative transformative experience reading it. Um, and I have reread it. I don't know how many times since then. Well, for for those of uh, those of our listeners who haven't read it just yet it's basically it's a very short novel it's a, it's 180 pages is that right yeah i don't even think i don't even think of it as short but that is short yeah and it's um it's a whole day but it's and short, it's just yeah. one it's one day in this woman um she's middle-aged or at the end of middle age and she's getting ready for a party and it follows her uh mind as well as a few other characters uh within her day sometimes they're actually connected and sometimes they're just other people on the street that are nearby her. Um, they're, but they're all in the galaxy of, of Clarissa Dalloway. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, it's a strange, strange book. Uh, the, the sentence structure is completely, I mean, I think you could probably count the semicolons, and it probably <laughs> has more semicolons in a book than I've read in the last, like, 20 books I've read. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's... I don't know. I, I was complete. I was completely floored by it. I've never read any of uh, Virginia. I was gonna Wolf say, hey, you ever read this a book? I read first. it in college too, and I didn't. I didn't love it in college. I read it in a class where we were specifically talking about the city in novels, mm. and in that sense, I loved it. I, I wrote a paper that I still think about, and just like the way that the city pushes Peter towards Clarissa's house at the end, and just that was very powerful. But rereading it again recently. I I was like, what? How stupid was I in college to be like, oh, this book's fine. It's incredible. Mm. Um, and I, you mentioned that you've reread it many times. I'm curious if it, if it shifts for you, if it changes, if things jump out, if you look at it differently when you reread it now. Right. And do you go in with a question like <laughs> that you're going to answer this huh. time through? No, except you know this book can't be possibly be as good as I remember it being, and then it turns out to be nice. Way better. I mean, it's a funny book. I, I, I sometimes think back, why did I, when I was 18, really recognize myself in this book? It's, it's not about 18-year-olds. Mm-hmm. It's about older people. Uh, <laughs> it's, also, it's also really hard, which I, I was like a lazy and stupid 18-year-old. Um, but somehow, Wolf managed to reach me um, with this complicated book that had a lot of, that has no plot and lots of semicolons in it. <laughs> um, somehow, it penetrated my, my, my freshman year uh, consciousness. Um, uh, which is sort of amazing. Um, I I really love the the when the book sort of switched from me being sort of studying through it and not quite connecting to it emotionally, um, but when I did start connecting to it emotionally was the the sequence where uh, Richard Dalloway is is realizing that he needs to go home and tell um, Clarissa Dalloway, his wife, that he loves her. Like he's he's out with Peter. He knows that Peter Walsh is in town, who's Clarissa's former flame and he's like okay i need to go home 
and tell her how I feel. And then he's got this whole sequence of going home and thinking about like, wow, this is what happiness is, is going home in this wonderful city and I'm gonna see my wife and tell her I love her. And he buys her flowers and then he shows up at and sees her and gives her the flowers and then says like, I don't actually need to say I love you. Like the flowers will do that for me, never mind. Yeah. And it was sort of, it was a very human like moment of just a very small um, moment in his life, but she like brought it out and put it under a microscope, which was really, was really fascinating. And I, you know, in genre or in, in plotted things, I feel like you don't have the time to necessarily create those small moments. Do you have strategies as, as a writer to find moments like that or, or spaces like that in your own work? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, t it's, it's interesting. I, when I, after I read Mrs. Dalloway, I spent, approximately somewhere between 10 and 15 years trying to figure out how to write like Virginia Woolf, <laughs> which was a mistake. Um, <laughs> because if you're not a genius, then you can't write like Virginia Woolf. And, uh, and I and eventually I had to give up and start writing fantasy novels instead. But I was very, very conscious of... Um, I mean, one of the great things about fantasy novels is that they people talk about how they are um, you know, bound by all these conventions uh, of the fantasy genre, um, uh, which is complete horseshit. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all. First of all, literary novels have conventions too, by which they are bound. But also, one of the wonderful things about it is when you have conventions, people there are things that people expect to happen, and you can either fulfill those expectations or uh, you can disappoint them or explode them. Um, and you know this simple business of uh, and in fan you know fantasy you're kind of expecting in genre generally speaking you know you're expecting more climaxes than anticlimaxes, um, and so you know I I I try to sort of um, when writing magicians I want people to enjoy it on the level of a fantasy novel but I want to make sure you know there's there's a, there's a there's a certain amount of anticlimax there there are things that you you think are going to happen that don't happen. You think, you know, people finish the magicians, what was Quentin's discipline? They don't know, because he doesn't find out. And in fact, he doesn't find out for, t for two more books. Um, because, you know, in life, you find some things out and some things you don't find out. Uh, there are a lot of things that I, that I, that I tried to sort of, I sort of, um, you know, it's, it's like that Dalloway writes, uh, sorry, Wolf writes to Mrs. Dalloway, you're building things up and you're tumbling things down. And you build a bunch of things up and then some things you tumble down instead. And you never you, you want to make sure the reader never knows which ones are going to be which. Uh, and I do that to some extent, and Wolf does that amazingly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I remember being shocked when I first read it that, you know, I was, I was expecting some sort of melodramatic climax involving Septimus and Clarissa, and there was going to be, just because that's sort of what I had been trained to understand right, up to right. that point. And then it doesn't happen. Right. You're reading and think, when do they do it? <laughs> yeah, they're not gonna do it. It's never gonna. <laughs> it's never gonna happen. I mean, I think the first, the thing that first alerted me that that the, that the rules had changed when I was reading Mrs. Dalloway was, uh, it's the scene where where um, Peter uh, falls asleep on a park bench. Yeah. Um. I I don't know. Surely this has been done in fiction before, and 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 I'm sure there are ten thousand examples. I had never seen it done before. Somebody narrating the, uh, a character's consciousness, um, and then you expect it to fade to black um, when they fall asleep, like a sex scene in an old movie. <laughs> uh, and, but, but Wolf doesn't stop. She, just, she, 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 she lets him get drowsier and drowsier, and then she simply charges across the border into sleep and keeps narrating. You don't even know when it happens because that's how sleep works. I, I thought it was the most stunning thing I'd ever seen, 
I felt like I was watching a movie and suddenly it flipped into full color 3D, like, you know, uh, uh, crazy special effects. Like, I just didn't understand that you could do that in fiction. Um, uh, and uh, I don't know if anybody else did it before. Before Wolf figured it out. It was just astounding. It's like in Ulysses where Bloom goes into the bathroom and takes a shit. And you think, <laughs> again, you think, I thought they were going to fade to black. <laughs> I enjoyed it more in, in, in Mrs. Dalloway than I did in Ulysses, but major respect for both, for both, both parties. <laughs> I mean, my, my other sort of takeaway from this book is Septimus, who is just the saddest character, really trying to hold on to sanity and other times... <laughs> running screaming from sanity and i i guess i i was trying to figure out in this in my first reading of this book what is she doing with with having him be the other dominant voice other than clarissa i mean are we are we supposed to be comparing and contrasting their like their sentence structures that their madness and their sanity is sort of similar or i don't know i i was sort of uh, puzzled by it i was curious what you guys thought I mean, I think it, it's hard for me to look at Septimus and not think about Virginia herself and and the struggles that she went through uh, with depression and mental illness. And that it resonated a lot more with me this this second time that I read it, having grown up a little bit and having like gone through bouts of things like and being like, whoa, hang on, this guy is not just a he's not a counterpoint to Clarissa, he's, I don't even know exactly how to describe it. They're both, they're both so human. Mm-hmm. Well, they're, she, they're on the border. I mean, yeah. It, it, I guess like it could be sort of a, this is the, this is where she could tumble down into Septimus if she's not careful. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, certainly she's, she's establishing that there is a continuity between sanity and madness rather than being, them being two separate opposed days. Um, I, I confess that the older I get, um, uh, this is a horrible thing to say, I'm going to say it anyway, the less successful a character Septimus seems to me hmm. to be. Uh, there's, there's an element, and this is, probably comes out of you know, my own sort of struggles with depression, which I've had, uh, I feel as though there's a level in which Wolf romanticizes mental illness. Uh, you know, when she talks about psychiatrists treating mental illness, uh, she just rants about it. it it's, it's a weird moment where, where the kind of perfectly poised sort of uh, uh, narrator's kind of um, aloofness kind of goes away, and right. she just starts spitting venom on, on the Harvey Street psychiatrists. Um, and it makes me stop and think, wait, this guy's really seriously ill. Like, he needs to get to a hospital like, <laughs> yeah. right, right away. It's not, it's, it, it, it's, it's not beautiful and romantic, um, you know, what he's going through on his own with no care whatsoever. Um, he really ought to have a psychiatrist. He shouldn't have a bad one, but, but he ought to have one. Yeah, well, was there good psychiatry at the time? Or, or was it just, like, as much, you know, uh, what's the, lithium... Well, <laughs> <you can laughs> yeah. we're, we're 1925. We're well into the, 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 Freudian, the Freudian epoch. Um, uh, Interpretative Dreams was 1900, 1901. Uh, and in fact, I know that Wolf, uh, the Wolfs um, in, with Hogarth Press published Freud. I think they were his first publisher of record in England. Really? So you know, she, was, she, she understood that, 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 that Freud and psychoanalysis were a thing. Uh, whether she thought that he was bogus or whether she thought um, 
uh, that, that, Septi that, that Septimus just wasn't encountering good psychoanalysis um, is probably a historical fact that somebody knows. Um, but I'd be, I'd be curious to know. There's something about the way that the novel does spin through these different, these different people and it moves and it captures their emotional state so well, but then it does, it just like, it bounces off into this nanny who's walking by Peter and being like, why is that old dude asleep? <laughs> and then it comes right back. Mm, who is that narrator? Who is, who's speaking uh, in Mrs. Dalloway? It's something, that's a, a mystery I always think about when I read it. Who is that person? Well, I mean, I kind of kept thinking about um, the Patrick Melrose novels by uh, um, Edward St. Aubin, mm -hmm. where he spends time with, he spends more time in each of those like disparate characters' heads. And it almost like reading Mrs. Dalloway is actually one of these like key novels where I feel like now I understand what a bunch of other people were doing. <laughs> huh. um, yeah. And he's one where I feel like he was, he read Mrs. Dalloway and he was frustrated where he was like, I want 50 pages with that person and 50 pages with that person too. So that's what I'm going to do mm. in my, in my work. Yeah. Um, but I think that we'd be remiss to not talk about the the main sort of uh, love triangle between, or I don't know, like love square. If you <laughs> think of like Hugh as being part of it, right? Hugh, yeah. Hugh, Peter, and Richard of of these three men who are all in various degrees love in love with Clarissa, and it, it was great to kind of be in her mind and then see as we're walking around the party how everyone else sees her which is sort of frivolous very charming very beautiful i mean there's something lovely that scene that you mentioned earlier where richard comes back and he's unable to say i love you and then it flips to her perspective and she's like that silly man i can't believe he did this i love him so much he doesn't need to say it when i read that this time that i started crying when i read <laughs> that just because i was like oh that's right that's what it's like. That's that's love as a grown like that makes sense to me suddenly where it didn't when I was nineteen years old. Yeah, and I maybe have that uh, have that um, expectation too of when you read something like this that the that the maybe maybe this is me growing up on too many bad sitcoms, but I ex <laughs> I assume that Richard is going to be awful, you know, like he's going to be a loutish, you know, and not deserve her is what I was sort of expecting, and then it turns right. out that he's super thoughtful and charming himself. No, uh, I, I can't think that it would have gone well with, with her and Peter. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think she made the right call. And it's funny, she really dares to, um, you know, she dares to um, <coughs> speak, you know, uh, 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 several loves that, that, that you know, that, that, are, that are unspeakable, not mm -hmm. just um, between uh, Clarissa and Sally, um, but also Clarissa's, like, just incredible bourgeois... Um, just love with being upper middle class. Um, <laughs> just, you know, my beautiful bookshelves, you know, this house that I have, it's so fucking great being here. <laughs> I mean, she's just like a sort of, just a, just a hugely self-satisfied upper middle class white person. Uh, and, you know, she, she uh, Wolf doesn't apologize for it uh, or tiptoe around it. She just lets her just wallow in it. Uh, and it's, it's an amazing thing because um, it's very, very real. I kept forgetting at the beginning, how old Clarissa is supposed to be, too. Mm. Because often her voice seems very young. Yeah, there's there's a 
a point where you realize that you know those the flashbacks and the memories of her time with Sally, you're like you haven't you haven't matured all that much right. in the intervening <laughs> years. And and now I really want did I mean did sh- I want like what's that type of novel that's written from someone else's perspective? Uh, I yeah. want that for Sally because yeah. she's oh, fascinating. Man. Yeah. I gotta call my agent. <laughs> 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 that's a really good idea for a novel. Somebody should write it. Somebody <laughs> should definitely write it. Lev, as somebody who who holds Mrs. Dalloway specifically in such high esteem. I've not read any other Virginia Woolf, but this year I'm intending to to crack it four mm. more. Um, and the, I have them. Right. I have To the Lighthouse, The Waves, Orlando, oh. and A Room of One's Own. Do you have a suggestion of like, all right, you've read Mrs. Dalloway. Right. You liked it. Where do you go next in... I mean, there's a, you know, there's a canonical progression, which is, unless I'm completely confused the order in which she wrote them um well she tended to over to alternate um you know big fat tomes with small playful tones so you have you have mrs dalloway and and to the lighthouse and and the waves but you also have flush mm-hmm. and orlando which is you know a very playful fun fantastical novel um but you know in 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 the escalating ladder of seriousness you're supposed to go mrs dalloway and then to the lighthouse and then the waves uh, I'll tell you a, a thing that reflects poorly on me, which is that I never enjoyed another Wolf novel as much as I enjoyed Mrs. Dalloway. Uh, to the Lighthouse, I think, is more formally, it, it's on a bigger scale, it's more formally ambitious. Um, uh, and yet, uh, I felt, uh, I always felt, although I, I love it, it's, it's a ridiculous thing to say, it's, it's a great, great novel, which, I, which, I, which, which absolutely ravished me, but I didn't enjoy it as much as Mrs. Dalloway. I, uh, I, I felt... Um, a bit weighed down by it, um, whereas I sort of felt buoyed up by by Mrs. Dalloway, uh, and I would say that even more for the waves, mm. um, uh, yeah, which is tremendously ambitious. Uh, but somehow it's not light on its feet the way um, Mrs. Dalloway was, and maybe it's because I read it first. But I didn't fall in love with them the way I did with Mrs. Dalloway. I'm a little, I'm nervous about that myself, although. If at the end of the day it's like, well, those are lovely novels, but I have Mrs. Dalloway, I feel I'm I'm pretty okay with that. <laughs> um, well, I I guess that kind of moves very nicely into uh, into recommendations for the week. You know, what do you uh, what do you recommend that people check out, Drew? Uh, let's see. Um, oh, a new fantasy trilogy, the second book of which is coming out, I believe, in June. Uh, Erica Johansson's Queen of the Tearling. Mm-hmm. It's another book that feels similarly to the Magicians trilogy that it is in conversation with um, the fantasy and and the canon in general. It's not even just fantasy. Mm-hmm. There's an implication in the first book that like the Harry Potter books exist in this world and the Narnia books exist, and that I just finished the second book, uh, Invasion of the Tearling, and it builds that out a little bit. But it's one of those things where the main character knows what she knows because she's read all of this stuff. Huh. Interesting. Um, and the world building is is tricky. I don't know if it's going to succeed. It's gonna. It's one of those live or die by the third book <laughs> trilogies. But what's a tearling? Yeah. It's a. Uh, it's the country that they live in, uh. which is. I don't. Know, it seems vaguely like a cross between France and England. Right. Like feudal France and feudal. I don't know. <laughs> I'm assuming that that'll be explained to me at some point. It hasn't in the first two books. <laughs> uh, Lev? Um, well, uh, there's a, a book coming out uh, very shortly 
um, it may already be out, um, by Kate Atkinson called uh, A God in Ruins, which is not so much a sequel, um, but I think Atkinson calls it a companion volume to Life After Life, mm. which, uh, to my mind, was the best novel published in English in 2013. Uh, a magnificent achievement, not unWolfian, I think, in its kind of um, in, in the mode in which she writes, and um, uh, yeah, a Gone in Ruins is is is, uh, is is about the same characters, but it's reverse angle from uh, a relatively minor character from uh, from Life After Life, and it's it's written with the same just like cosmic formal mastery that um, you saw in Life After Life. Um, it's a it's a beautiful and just crushingly sad book. I I'm 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 jaded and old, and I rarely cry um, when I read books. But I I cried over a, a God in Ruins. It's it's very beautiful. Christopher, well, um, if we're going to be devastating people, <laughs> um, I I mentioned last episode that I bought a li- uh, a little life by Hanya Yanagihara, and now I've read it, um, and it. It's one of those books I actually say said somewhere else that um you know I actually can't recommend it because it's so melancholy and depressing and sad and devastating and some of the most just I can't believe that she had to put herself in those moments <laughs> to write them uh sort of plot points um but it's if you're drawn to it and if you're interested in in it it's an incredible an incredible achievement of a novel which faints like it's a like a New York group of uh, graduates novels and then it focuses on on one of the characters this this guy Jude who is a lawyer slash mathematician and um, you follow his incredibly sad life as it's um, revealed to you piecemeal over the course of the novel and it's a incredible writing and um, just absolutely the most horrific things <laughs> so if you want that <laughs> that is my recommendation um and also i recommend drinking this drink that i made for um which lev is not joining us in drinking today but that's just because it's noon <laughs> uh, this is shameful admission though um but yeah this is the this is a drink called the quentin which is a take on the moscow mule and uh, you can read our um our recipe and how I arrived at it at uh, so many damn books.com. Yeah. I'm going to have one promptly at eight o'clock tonight. Perfect. That's very good. Well, Lev, uh, thank you so much for coming here. It has been an absolute honor to get to talk to you both about your books and about Mrs. Dalloway. Yeah. I've enjoyed myself immensely. Well, we'll uh, see you next week with, or next, next time, next time with, um, uh, we're, we're going to be talking about with, uh, Laura Vandenberg about, uh, find, find me, me and, uh, some summer reading. Yeah. Stay tuned. Bye. Bye.